Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to go over Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is a very important chapter of the Bible because here is where I see the strongest evidence that the Apostle Paul was coming up into conflict with the Platonists. We have in Acts 17, 18, Paul in Athens, and he's arguing with Epicurean and Stoics, and it's mentioned explicitly in Acts 17, verse 18, but conspicuously absent is any mention of the Platonists. For anyone who's interested in the state of Greek philosophy, what kind of ideas were flowing around at that time, Cicero has a book, and it's called The Nature of the Gods, and it's available on Amazon, and he goes over these various belief systems, what they believed, and what particularly they believed about who God was and what God does. And, of course, the Epicureans and the Stoics, both polytheists in a sense, there's a lot of Platonists at that time, which were also polytheists, but it's interesting that in Acts 17, the Platonists aren't mentioned. Maybe it's just a historical thing. These are the people who were particularly incensed against uh, Paul's message. Could be that. But Colossians 2 really makes it a little bit more clear who he's dealing with, at least in the city of Colossae. And let's, let's pay attention to his subtle hints, uh, what kind of language he uses, what kind of ideas that he encounters, that he's fighting against, and then we'll kind of see who he's actually addressing. And true, it's not just the Platonists, it's a mixture of these various ideas that are all coming together and all attacking Christianity at once. But it's lumped together in Colossians 2 under the guise of just general philosophy. So Colossae, that's not a Jewish city. That is in modern-day Turkey. It's near Ephesus, if you know where Ephesus is, on the coast. If you have a chance to visit Ephesus, I would very much recommend it because it was an ancient town and the coast shifted. And so instead of like in Athens where new buildings are built up on the old buildings and then you only find stuff by digging down into the ground, maybe you're putting a building down, then you discover ruins underneath. That didn't happen in Ephesus because the coast shifted. The city then moved and right now Ephesus is this great archaeological excavation, just a beautiful recreation of this ancient city. But Colossae was Greek. It had a small Jewish establishment where whenever Paul went to a city he first sought out the Jews those were his home people those were the people who were most welcoming as soon as he started preaching a lot of them turned against him and then he often had to turn to the Gentiles and depend on them for support particularly the God-fearers these weren't necessarily new converts into Judaism these were people who were anticipating switching over, becoming a Jew, but just haven't taken the final step, the circumcision, because uh, that that's a pretty deep step. <laughs> There's no coming back from that one. So starting with Colossians 2.1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So I'm going to point out something pretty subtle that Paul does here. What he does when he's writing to people is he often expropriates ideas. He takes ideas, concepts, cultural idioms, things that they'd be familiar with, and he turns them on its head. He, he switches it around. He makes it about Jesus. He makes it about God. He makes it about Christianity. And some of the language he uses would be very familiar to the people of the time. He uses the word mystery. He says, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. 
the ancient Greeks, they had mystery cults. Mystery cults. These cults were organizations that were surrounded, they were established around a particular deity. They had certain rituals and rites. And it was, it's just like any other club where there's different levels of initiation. And the higher you go, the more secret knowledge you have access to. Whereas the, the innermost initiates, the people at the highest on the scale, they're allowed to access the deepest mysteries of that cult. This is very important to understand because Paul turns this on its head. He proclaims boldly the mysteries. The mysteries. He does that uh, Ephesians. Remember Ephesians 3, 6? Ephesians 3, 4. By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge into the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promised in Christ through the gospel. So mystery is a secret knowledge, and in Ephesians, he subverts that by saying, this is the mystery. I'm writing it down. You can't write the mysteries down. That was a death penalty offense in the ancient world. So he writes down the mysteries, and he openly proclaims to the Christians what those mysteries are. And he's not super consistent in the use of this word. It's not like the mystery is XYZ concept, and every time Paul uses mystery throughout his works, it's only that concept. No, he's using it as a subversion. So in Ephesians 3, the mystery is about this equality of the Jews and the Gentiles. But in Colossians, it's something different. But notice how he frames Christianity as a mystery. He's saying this is the mystery of God. In Ephesians 3, he says the mystery of Christ. He's creating a sense and equation to these mystery religions, these mystery cults. But this is going to be subversive, and we'll, we'll get into that as we go along here. And now we really get a sense of what's happening that has prompted this letter. Colossians 2.4 Now I say this lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words. Huh? So there's some words that are going on. People are trying to convince people of stuff with persuasive words. So that's a key phrase that we could use to figure out what's going on here, who he's talking to. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted up and built in him, established in faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Okay, so, so let's check out this next verse. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So in 2.4, we have persuasive words. That's the enemy that Paul is countering here. In 2.8, it is philosophy and empty deceit, and it's the, the tradition of men and the basic principles of the world. Okay, so he's, he's dealing with some sort of philosophy. So contextually, wouldn't you think that the very next verse is that philosophy? What does he say next? He says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It says, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So who would deny that Jesus is the full Godhead bodily, right? There's specific Gnostics that went around trying to claim that Jesus didn't actually exist as a body. And here's Clement of Alexandria quoting the Gnostic Valentinius. Valentinius writes, He was continent, enduring all things. Jesus digested divinity. He ate and drank in a special way without excreting his solids. He had such a great capacity for continence that the nourishment within him was not corrupted, for he did not experience corruption. 
What's this claim? Valentinius, a Gnostic, is claiming that Jesus' body was so devoid of corruption that he didn't really eat and drink like we do, and he didn't poop, right? He didn't go to the bathroom because his body was this spiritual non-corruption body. And there's a particular ancient heresy called Docetism in which a lot of people, even during the time of the apostles, they argued that Jesus could not have been divine and physical at the same time. Jesus's physical nature couldn't be the physical reality we experienced, and Jesus was either either a spiritual being or like a non-corrupted being. And this is what Paul is fighting here, that the divinity dwelled bodily. And in Platonism, that is tantamount to heresy, because remember, the material world is the changing, is the corrupt. If things can change, then it can be corrupted, and the perfect doesn't change. So the closer you get to changeless perfection is the closer you get to divinity, Paul argues, no, that the divinity dwelled bodily. We also see John brush up against these people. He says, those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, those people are the heretics, right? There's actual heresies in the early church, and it was those people imbued with Platonism, trying to claim that the physical could not be divine. The Jews were more amiable to this type of position. Remember, in Judaism, especially at that time, Yahweh did have a body, and they're laughed at as being barbarians by the Greeks. Oh, these stupid Jews, they believe all this nonsense. And and the Jews are continually criticized for holding this belief, even in the dialogue with Typhro. And uh, we, had, we had Dov Weiss on this program, and in, in his article, he talks a little bit about these scandals between the Christians and the Jews in which the Christians uh, mock or they, they, they show derision towards Judaism for having this idea that Yahweh had a body. So when Paul says, he says that Christianity, that Jesus is a stumbling stone to the Jews, right? That's, it's, they're not based off of philosophy. They're expecting a warrior Messiah to liberate them. It's a stumbling block to them, but to the Gentiles, it's folly. To the philosophy, they say, what? What? You, you got a Messiah. You got someone who's divine, who has a body, who's crucified, corruption. We got our philosophy. Our philosophy doesn't agree with this. And to them, it was foolishness. To the Jews, it was more of a stumbling stone. Oh, we reject this. We got our covenant theology. We're the chosen people. We're looking for a warrior Messiah, not a crucified king. We hit verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's absolutely dealing also with some Jews, Jews that are trying to press circumcision on the Gentile converts. And he's saying, no, you don't have to do circumcision despite what these Jews say. He says, you're buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespass. All right. So this is how Paul's theology is working, that Christ's death has liberated people, has destroyed any requirement for circumcision for these certain works. And he says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And here's his point. This is what he's leading up to. He says, let no one judge you in food or in drink. So being judged in food or drink, that might bring to mind kosher food laws. But it also brings to mind asceticism. 
And there's different people who are running around in those days saying that the most spiritual you could be is the the least physical you could be. So the people who sit there and fast all day and meditate and try to ascend to a different realm, they're the more spiritual ones. They're the ones that we need to emulate. We need to emulate this return to the one, this return to the intellectual realm. And they would neglect their bodies, right? Asceticism. And the Essenes, they had been corrupted by some of this asceticism. And just looking at their practices, looking at their practices shows that they are practicing this type of uh, ascension theology. Let's move on, starting again at verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 17. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So let's put a few things together. He talks about being, in the beginning, he uses an illustration. He says, I'm absent in the flesh, but I'm with you in spirit. He talks about the Godhead being fully bodily. He talks about then these shadows. And this is all in the context of empty philosophy and asceticism. This shadow imagery particularly should flag everyone's minds right there. And it would in the ancient world, especially among philosophers if you're using shadow language. Because Plato had a famous allegory of the cave. And that deeply involved shadows and how shadows weren't the real thing, but represented the real thing. And Paul, he writes, these are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He's drawing on Platonistic imagery to make a point. And let's cover the allegory of the cave real quick, because a lot of people don't actually understand what it's about. You'll take a high school or college level philosophy class and they'll say, oh, what this means, this is a parable about how the majority doesn't accept the minority and the minority sometimes right and the majority persecutes them for being right. That's, that's not what it's about. That's not what Plato is trying to communicate. Instead, it's about this asceticism, this return to this one, the ascent the physical world versus the spiritual world, and this Platonistic idea that you have to transcend the material to get back to the spiritual, to get back to the intellectual realm. And let's read that allegory of the cave. We are now turning to Plato's The Republic, Book 7. This is Plato writing, And now I will describe in a figure the enlightenment or unenlightenment of our nature. So he's talking about nature here. He's talking about our physical beings. He's not talking about majority-minority dynamics. This is spiritual to him. He says this, Imagine human beings living in an underground den which is open towards the light. They have been there from childhood, having their necks and legs chained, and they could only see into the den. At a distance there is a fire, and between the fire and the prisoners a raised way, and a low wall is built along the way like a screen, over which marionette players show their puppets. Behind the wall appear moving figures who hold in their hands various works of art, and among them images of men and animals. Wood and stone, sun, and some of the passers-by are talking and others are silent, and they see only the shadows of the images which the fire throws on the wall of the den. To these they give names. And if we add an echo which returns from the wall, the voices of the passengers will seem to proceed from the shadows." All right, we see how this scene is set up. So there's some people, and they're looking at a wall, and on the wall is projections. There's some light being cast on it, and so there's shadows. And they see these shadows acting and moving and doing things, and they think that this is their world. 
They think that those shadows represent reality. And when the people talk in the background, even though it's just the shadows being projected against the wall, they ascribe the language, what they hear, they ascribe it to the shadows. So their world revolves around these shadows and they know nothing else. Plato goes on and he writes, Suppose now that you suddenly turn them around and make them look with pain and grief to themselves at the real images. Will they believe them to be real? Will not their eyes be dazzled and will not they try to get away from the light to something which they are able to behold without blinking? And suppose further that they are dragged up a steep and rugged ascent into the presence of the sun itself. Will not their sight be darkened with the excess of light? Now, everyone's seen the movie The Matrix. Well, maybe not everyone. I mean, kids are pretty old these days, and you talk to them, and they it's like all these movies that I grew up with came out before you're born. So a lot of times, maybe they just don't know these references anymore. But there's a movie, it's called The Matrix, and the plot was that these people live in this world, and this world is all a fabricated world. It's all just images being streamed into their head. And one of the characters, he takes a pill And he wakes up and he experiences the real world. It's just a system shock to him. His entire existence, everything he had known, was uh, fabricated. And there's a new reality that's imposed upon his previous assumptions. That's exactly what Plato is doing here with this allegory of the cave. He says that if someone grew up looking at these shadows and thinking the shadows were the real world, then them being exposed to the truth would be a very intimidating and frightening experience. And from here, he's going on to make a spiritual, a philosophical point about what he perceives is the nature of reality. He's saying, you know, everything I talk about might be look absurd, sound absurd, but it's, it's really like the Matrix, and you just have to be enlightened enough. And everyone who doesn't agree with me are these cave dwellers who they're just kind of dumb people that look at shadows. So this is like the first real ad hominem, right, in philosophy. All my critics are just like cavemen. So here's Plato's point. He says, Now the cave or den is the world of sight. The fire is the sun. The way upwards is the way to knowledge. And in the world of knowledge, the idea of good is last seen and with difficulty. But when seen is inferred to be the author of good and right, parent of the Lord of light in this world, and of truth and understanding in the other, He will attain to the beatific vision is always going upwards. He is unwilling to descend into political assemblies and courts of law, for his eyes are apt to blink at the images or shadows of images which they behold in them. He cannot enter into the ideas of those who never in their lives understood the relation of the shadows to the substance. This is about spiritual ascension. He says, don't focus on the material world. Don't focus on the day-to-day politics. We need to be ascending, ascending, always moving upwards. So let's move on to Plato's work, Phaedo, where he talks about the mystery cult. Remember, we talked about the mystery religions already. He says this, And I conceive that the founders of the mysteries had a real meaning and were not mere triflers when they imitated a figure long ago that he who passes unsanctified and uninitiated into the world below will live in a slough but that he who arrives there after initiation and purification will dwell with the gods. For many, as they say in mysteries, are the thysis bearers, but few are the mystics, meaning as I interpret the words are true philosophers. He goes on and he says, But he who is a philosopher or lover of learning and is entirely pure at departing is alone permitted to reach the gods. And this is the reason 
why the true Voltaires of philosophy abstain from all fleshly lusts, and endear and refuse to give themselves up to them, not because they fear poverty or ruin of their families, like lovers of money and the world in general, nor like the lovers of power and honor, because they dread the dishonor or disgrace of those deeds. What he's saying here is there's a real reason to be an aesthetic. There's a real reason to disregard fleshly desires and money. And it's, it's not just because uh, you, you, know, you, you care about taking care of people and, and you just don't like the money. It's, it's to become a true philosopher so you could ascend to the spiritual realm. This was his idea, the ascension. Ascension through disregard of the flesh, a disregard of the physical, and then a spiritual enlightenment into this upper realm. And this is why people were ascetics. It wasn't because they were just trying to live more pure lives. They were trying to ascend into a deeper state of being. This is why the Platonists, they denied that Jesus had fleshly longings. They denied that he was uh, material, that he could change, that his body endured any type of corruption, because that would mean he's part of this lower realm, this slough, this, this changeable, corruptible world. And they couldn't have that because he was supposed to be a spirit being, an incorruptible being, part of an upper realm that wasn't subject to the decay of this world. So Paul says that he's absent in the flesh with you in spirit. That kind of hints at ascension type language. He calls Christianity a mystery cult, right? He talks about philosophy. He talks about shadows. He talks about people being judged in what they eat or drink. He says, don't let anyone judge you regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. False humility when you look at your text, pull up your New King James and look at that phrase, false humility. One of those words, one of those words are in italics. And for those who don't, don't know how the Bible's written in English, those italicized words are words not present in the original text. He says, taking delight in false humility is how it's translated, but he's actually saying these people take delight in humility. Asceticism, right? Disregard of the flesh. It's not a false humility. That's just a complete translator bias. They're just shoving that in there because they don't understand the context of what he's addressing. So he says, don't let people judge you in holidays. Don't let them judge you in what you eat or drink. He says, don't listen to these people who take delight in humility. Oh, woe is me. I'm such a holy man because I neglect food and I neglect the body. Worship of angels is interesting. So who's worshiping angels? Would it be the mystery cults who center their religions around these uh, demons, as Paul calls them elsewhere? He says what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And remember, the Platonists, the Stoics, Epicureans, they all believed in these pantheon of gods in different manners, in different manners. Like the Platonists would think that they're, they're spirits, they're kind of like the angels in Christianity, where they're, they're kind of a spirit being that exists out there. They're not the ultimate god in Platonism, though. What also comes to mind is these Gnostics who build tiers of different uh, dissensions, right? You start with the ultimate God, and because he has to have several degrees of separation from the material world, they would keep adding in emanations. That God saw himself and spawned Sophia Wisdom, which spawned whatever Aeon, which spawned whatever Aeon. And it had to have several degrees of separation to keep God apart from the material world. God's unchanging. 
And the only way you could get from an unchanging world to our current status of corrupted Earth was to put in buffer layers, right? It couldn't come directly from him because, oh, that would degrade him as, as a god, as unchanging, as perfect being. And those layers were kind of acted as a buffer. It's all nonsense. But that's how they rationalized this, how this changing, corrupt world could come from something unchanging and uncorrupted. So worship of angels, introducing those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. It, do, it, just, it just screams Gnosticism. It screams aeons. It screams Platonism, these dissensions into the physical world. He says, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Moving on, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So who Paul is fighting are people saying, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't drink this, don't eat that. Those are the people he's fighting against. Is he talking about Jews? Well, well, maybe. Maybe he's talking about the Essenes, but the Essenes was more Syria-based rather than based in Turkey in this small city in Colossae. Chances are, chances are he's more dealing with Platonistic influence, Gnostic influences that have already influenced the church. People saying Jesus couldn't be divine because he's physical, because the physical has corruption. What we need to do as spiritual beings is to neglect this body, go into this sense of humility, and ascend to the spiritual realm. And he's saying, don't listen to these people. Don't listen to what they tell you to eat and drink. Don't worship angels. Don't involve yourself in these mystery cults. We got the true mystery here, the mystery of Christ. And I'm going to tell you the mystery. I'm going to tell you what we can and can't do. And I'm going to declare to the world what our religion says. He says, all these things, they concern that which perish. You see the perish language that you also find in Plato, that the perfect doesn't change and anything that changes is corruptible and perishes. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, he says, these things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. And then the English translation has the next phrase, false humility. But of course, it's not false humility. It's just humility. It's asceticism. And the neglect of the body. Neglect of the body. Is that a Jewish concept? It's not really. Maybe the Essenes, but it's not standard Judaism neglecting the body. Where do they get these ideas? And what's happening in Colossae where he has to talk about food, drink, perishable things, worship of angels, neglect of the body? And he says, none of these have any value against the indulgence of the flesh. So ends chapter 2, but chapter 3, he talks about putting on a new self. He's creating a new spiritual world in this reality. He says, do now in the flesh, put on the new body. Not a Platonistic idea, right? Keep in mind, the Jewish hope, the Christian hope, is in a recreated earth. This isn't a resurrection of the body. It's not in a spiritual world. We're going to live in heaven with harps, or we're going to ascend to this intellectual realm. It's a restored earth. Our hope is in the physical reality. And that is who Paul is fighting against. These people who think that that concept is is a very barbaric and uneducated idea. People who 
show disdain towards this physical reality being our ultimate reality. That's who he's fighting here. These people showing humility of the flesh. These people that are neglecting the body. These people that aren't eating or drinking. These people that are engaging in asceticism. Let's sum up real quick the evidence of what we're seeing going on in Colossians 2. Who is he talking to? Who is he addressing the letter to? What kind of problems is he dealing with? He's dealing with persuasion. He's dealing with philosophy. He's dealing with vain conceit, people puffed up in their minds, describing things they have not seen. What does that sound like? That sounds like Plato's allegory of the cave, right? He's dealing with people who are are involved with this humility, this asceticism, this denying of food and drink to the body. He's dealing with people who who neglect the body. He uses it, neglect the body. He's dealing with people who don't think that the flesh can be divine. He's dealing with people who deny that the Godhead could dwell bodily. He's dealing with Gnostics. He's dealing with Jews. He's dealing with Platonists. He's dealing with a mixture of all of these ideas. And this is in a letter to Colossae. It's a Greek city in the middle of a Greek territory with Greek ideas and mystery cultism. And these are the ideas that he's fighting. All right, so if you have any questions or comments, please send that to godisopen at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.